one of the responsibilities and privileges of being a pastor is preaching funerals. Now, I know that sounds weird, but um, it's one of the purest moments of ministry that a pastor can be a part of. I've never kept records, but um, I went back and tried to kind of kind of estimate. Um, I've probably preached more than 300 funerals. And it always fascinates me the different ways that people approach funerals. Some, some families have um, like a private burial service uh, at the graveside and then they come together in the church or the chapel and they have really kind of a celebration of life. Others want the, the casket to be present and, and so it's usually in the front surrounded by flowers and, um, and I've, I've preached a lot of those funerals. Occasionally, and this is my least favorite, but occasionally a family will insist that the casket be open through the entire funeral, which is always kind of awkward, you know, at least for me. It's hard to compete with, with people's attention when there's, you know, a dead body. But I was thinking back over, you know, estimated 300 funerals. And I got to thinking, what would happen? What would have happened? It's, it's never happened to me yet. But what would happen if, with that casket right there, if the person just set up in the middle of the funeral and was like, where am I? Hey, hey, guys, what's going on? What did I miss? Or maybe the casket is closed and you hear this banging. Hey, let me out. What, where am I? I'm thinking that unlike any of the other 300 funerals that I've done, that one would be memorable. And what would be the response? I mean, we live in a generation where we talk about people who died and were brought back to life, but, but usually that happens in the context of an operating room or or EMTs in an ambulance, and they say, oh, well, he died on the table, but, but they brought him back. We use that kind of language, and it, and it doesn't amaze us, but we don't talk about it three or four days later at the funeral as something that happens. That's precisely what we're seeing in John chapter 11, as we've looked at Lazarus over the last few weeks. Now, last week we saw Lazarus come out of the tomb, and and then we sort of wrapped it up. We didn't get a chance to look at, at the responses that happened that day. And so that's, that's what I want us to do this morning. The rest of John chapter 11, we're going to see the variety of responses. Now, you would think that there would only be one appropriate response. I mean, a dead man is brought back to life. All of a sudden, this Jesus that you've heard about, that you've maybe even heard him teach, maybe you've even been present in Jerusalem when he, when he performed this miracle or that miracle, you know that he's got power to make lame people walk. You know he's got the ability to make blind people see. You, you heard about the fish and the loaves and how that multiplied to feed, you know, maybe 15,000 people. You heard about him speaking a word and, and all of a sudden nature bows before him and, and storms go away and, and ships sail to sea in an instant, I mean, sail to the shore in an instant. You've heard all of those things, but this is different. This is a power and an authority that reaches to the other side of the grave, into the realm of the dead. He still has power and authority there. It seems like that would sort of settle any issues if I was on the fence about Jesus. It seems like the only response following the, the, the resurrection of Lazarus is that this guy is the real deal. This Jesus is who he says he is, and there is an implicit expectation that I will absolutely abandon any other loyalty and I will follow this man. Well, we're going to see a variety of responses, and that fortunately is one of them in this passage but you would think it would be the only response. It would sort of settle the issue of who Jesus was. 
But let's go to John chapter 11. We saw Lazarus come out of the tomb, but I want to drop back and, and just pick up that part of the story again. So let me, let me read beginning in verse 41 of John chapter 11. We have Lazarus alive, and we would expect that to sort of require celebration. Celebration is one of the responses. Belief is one of the responses. We're going to see that. But it wasn't that response across the board. And so let's look at this. For observers, those who were just there on the outside looking in, there was a decision that came out of this miracle that demanded their participation. By the way, let me mention this Lazarus miracle that we've been looking at in, in John chapter 11. This is the final miracle of Jesus's ministry until we get to his own resurrection. Everything that he has done has led up to this moment and climaxed here when he has shown his authority to extend to places that they never imagined. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 41. So they removed the stone and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, but I knew that you always hear me. Nevertheless, because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Out came the man who had died, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. This final miracle demands participation at a couple of levels. We talked a little bit about this last week. Jesus demanded physical participation. He could have made all of this happen just by the word of his own mouth, but he issues two orders. First of all, he tells the, the, the observers, the bystanders that are there to, to see what, to grieve with the family, he tells them to remove the stone. He follows that up with, with something that I don't want you to miss. When, when they remove the stone, Jesus then speaks those words. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But when Lazarus comes out, he's completely wrapped in grave clothes. And as he kind of does the mummy walk, Jesus immediately says, gives his second order of participation. He says, go unwrap the man. Now, what, what, I, what I don't want you to miss about that is, in all of the miracles that Jesus did, he never got caught up in the hoopla, in the, in the pizzazz of the miracle. I mean, seriously, I, 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 know, I know my own heart. I know how I am. If I say a prayer, if God's given me the confidence to say a prayer and somebody comes back to life right there, here's my response. <laughs> yeah! Look at me. I did that. You didn't do that. I did that. You, you didn't do that. I did that. Jesus doesn't do anything like, you know what Jesus does? Jesus just performs the greatest miracle in the history of the world. I mean, we can go back to the Old Testament. You know, there's Noah, there, there, there's, there, there's Noah and the ark. There's, there's the parting of the Red Sea. But, but this is a dead guy made alive. And what does he do? He's not caught up in the moment. He says, go and wrap him. Jesus never loses sight of the individual at the heart of the miracle. We talk about him healing a, a, a lame man. But for Jesus, it was never about the healing. It was about reaching into the soul of an individual who needed to know him. He took a blind man who, hadn't, who had been born blind, hadn't seen a day in his life, and he made him able to see. But it wasn't about being able to see physically for Jesus. It was about helping this man see spiritually. We always say, I, I, I've, been told, I've been told, you know, I, I would believe if I could just see a miracle. You don't understand. Miracles are never the point of what Jesus does. Miracles are simply one of the tools in his tool belt to accomplish the real project, which is putting the Father's glory on display. 
so that, so that men and women are drawn into the kingdom. Unwrap him, Jesus said. His mind was completely on Lazarus. But there's spiritual participation here. Remember it says that Jesus spoke with a loud voice. He said a prayer. He said the prayer, and in the prayer he tells us, uh, he prays, I'm not praying this prayer, Father, so that you hear me. I'm praying so that all of these people can hear me. Because you've already answered this prayer. You've already, uh, you've already assured me that, that this is going to happen. But I want them to see that, that this is coming from you through me, that this isn't some, some trick or some magic. I, I, I did a little bit of research because I couldn't quite get that out of my mind, that Jesus goes out of his way. It says, John says, with, with real emphasis in the Greek, that he spoke with a loud voice. I mean, he didn't just speak where he could be heard. He spoke with a loud voice. And I thought, why? I mean, it's not because Lazarus can't hear him. It can't be for the, for the sake of the, of the dead guy. So I did a little research. Let me tell you what I found. In the first century, something that was commonplace that, that people in small villages particularly would have been very familiar with is there were, um, there were, we would call them, we might call them wizards. The Bible calls them sorcerers or magicians. There were people who, uh, kind of witch doctors, who would travel the countryside and they would pull up into a village and they would sort of unpack their wares and they would make themselves for a fee available to do things for you that you needed done. If you had a, a cow that was sick or if you, if you felt like your crops weren't healthy or, or whatever, these, these shamans would make themselves available and they would, for a fee, they would do magic. Only when they would do that, they had a particular pattern. They had their spells and incantations, which they would often either whisper or mumble, because there were a couple of things. First of all, they, they didn't want anybody to know what it was they were saying because it was supposed to be some, you know, super secret magic thing. But the other thing was they were trying to maximize this aura of mystery. It somehow made them more impressive if people thought that they were, you know, in touch with the universe and, and, and could, could handle, uh, you know, all of these kinds of things. And so, so there, was, there, there was a kind of secretiveness to it. But not that way with the Son of God. When he spoke, there was no mumbling. There was no, there, there was no secretive, uh, you know, nature to it. He spoke loudly so that everybody could hear. He wanted them to understand this isn't a magic trick. This isn't, we're not, we're not, we're not pulling a fast one here. This is God through the Messiah, the Son of God, taking life back from death. To the observers that were there, it was a call not just to participate physically with stones and grave clothes, but to believe Jesus was who he said he was. But as usual, every time Jesus does something, it produces not agreement, but division. The observers needed to move from observing to participation, but there were also enemies present that day, and this decision that was presented to them only created hostility in their minds. Look at verse 46. But some of them, meaning the observers that were there that day, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now, it's interesting, John doesn't give us an explicit motive here, but in the context, there can be little doubt that these people were at some level hostile to Jesus. It's not that they were racing off to the Pharisees to try and present an evangelistic invitation. Not, they, they weren't going and saying, hey, listen, I know you guys haven't liked him, but, but he has, he's, he's taken it to a whole new level now. He brought a dead man back to life. You might want to reconsider your attitude toward this Jesus. No, it was not like that. They were snitches. They were spies. And as soon as they saw what had happened, they hightailed it back to the enemies of Jesus, not trying to win them over, but trying to win favor for themselves in the process. Now, the spies go back. They report this incredible 
miracle. And now look what happens. Verse 47, therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council meeting, and they were saying, what are we doing in regard to the fact that this man is performing many signs? If we let him go on like this, all the people will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take over both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor are you taking into account that it is in your best interest that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish instead. Now, he did not say this on his own, but as he was high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Let's talk about this. It says the chief priests and the Pharisees received this message. The chief priest consisted of the high priest who in this particular year was a man named Caiaphas, the captain of the temple who was typically in charge of temple security. There were members of leading priestly families who were on this council. Uh, They were all mostly Sadducees, which was a a political party. Uh, There was an influential minority group called the Pharisees They were more theological. Sadducees tended to be more political. Uh, They were often rivals with each other, but in this instance, they came together because they had a common enemy, this man, Jesus. They get the news that he's raised Lazarus back to life, and so they hastily call together everybody. It wasn't an official meeting. It was sort of an informal get-together. It was the kind of thing that said, hey, hey, go, go get all the guys. We need to discuss this. So they come together. And, and the text is suggestive of kind of disorder or confusion. They admitted that Jesus was a miracle worker, that he had, had been producing miracles, but they rejected his validity that he was the son of God because they couldn't allow that to be the case. And here's why. Look at what he says. They say, if we let him go on like this, All the people will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take over both our place and our nation. Think about that. Jesus just brought a dead man back to life. And here's their concern. If the crowds that are following him get to be too big, two things are going to happen. One that bothered the Pharisees and one that bothered the Sadducees. For the Sadducees, they said, if there's too much disturbance here, the Romans are going to come. They've already got soldiers, but they'll bring more soldiers. They're going to clamp down on us. They're going to take away our ability to run our own affairs. Sadducees, that was a big deal for them because they had political power. But then you had the Pharisees. They said the Romans will come and take away our place. Now, that, that fascinates me because What they're suggesting is the problem is not that Jesus is performing miracles. The problem is that Jesus doesn't fit the model that keeps the Pharisees as the alpha dogs in the room. See, if people start following Jesus, they're not going to need us. I mean, we've got a good thing going here. We've got a temple. It's a beautiful temple. We've got a sacrificial system that brings in, honestly, a lot of money. We've got a pretty lucrative practice going on here, and we keep the people in line. We've established the rules that they have to play by. We're in control of the rules, so people have to do what we say. We have all of the power. We have the position. And and not only that, we dominate the people, and we teach them to love us for it. And if they start following this man, Jesus, we're going to lose our place. Here's the thing. Bringing somebody back to life, that's, that's that's a pretty cool miracle. It should have settled the issue of their attitude toward Jesus. But you know what got in the way of that? What got in the way was the Pharisees only wanted a Messiah that maintained the system they controlled. This is not about Jesus being the Messiah. This is not about even the miracles. This is about who's going to be in charge. And let me tell you something. In your life, 
before you can come to Jesus, the question that is going to have to be settled is who's going to be in charge? Because you don't get to, to bring Jesus along and fit him into the spaces that you make available for him in the system of your life that you're running. He's either in charge or you're in charge. There's no in-between. This is not a partnership. This is not, a, this is not a, a, an agreement. He has, he has some things and, and you have other things. Either he has everything in your life or you're on your own. That was the issue here for the Pharisees. If these people follow him, we're going to lose our place, our power, our influence. We're going to lose control. It was their role as leaders that would be at stake, they thought, if Jesus were, were allowed to continue. Now, let's talk about the Sadducees for just a minute because Caiaphas, the high priest, was a Sadducee, and he's going to jump into this conversation a little bit. It's a little bit clearer in the Greek than in the English, but what we have here is, is he jumps into the conversation with a real attitude. <laughs> Josephus was a first century Jewish historian, and in his writings, he tells us that the Sadducees had a reputation for rudeness even among themselves. They were, that was just a part of their culture. Um, they viewed themselves as better than everybody else, and so they had a real disdain for people, and they talked down to people uh, pretty regularly. But that's, I want you to catch that here, because there's this, this agitated chatter going on. The group has come together. They've summoned each other. They've got this informal gathering going on. What are we going to do with this guy? What are we going to happen? We've got real problems if we can't solve this Jesus problem. And Caiaphas, the high priest, butts in and says, you know nothing at all. I mean, a looser translation of that would be, all you idiots be quiet for a minute. And look what he says. You know nothing at all, nor are you taking into account that it is in your best interest that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish instead. Now, he just crossed the line. Imagine yourself, put your, put your, put your imagination to work on this and, and see yourself in that group. And, and you're thinking, and you've got this Jesus problem, and, and he's, he's really a, a, a stick in the spokes of your bicycle. And you've got to figure out how to, how to deal with this. And Caiaphas says, isn't it obvious? You guys are so dumb. This man's got to go. He needs to die. Now, I wonder, as I think about this conversation, I wonder who was in that group that immediately said, yes, yes, that's exactly what needs to happen. Was there anybody else in the group that was like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute, we've got a problem here, and, and, and we've got to deal with this problem, but, but you're suggesting murder. Is that who we've become? Now, let me explain something to you. And you might not agree with this, but, but it's true. Here's the thing. Once you know who Jesus is, once you've seen that all the evidence points to the fact that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and you reject Jesus at that point, after that point, you can continue to appear respectable. But your soul will begin to crumble into pieces because you have allowed evil to reign. So if I don't follow Jesus, I'm evil. If you don't follow Jesus, your soul is in eternal danger. But it doesn't wait until eternity before that starts. The destructiveness of evil begins to eat away at us. And you might be able to reject Jesus and continue to tell yourself that you're a respectable person, but it won't last because who you are in your soul will one day be put on display in your outer man. You see, Caiaphas just crossed the line and he took an entire leadership of a generation with him. 
when he said, listen, you're not thinking this through. It's a classic ends justify the means argument. You're not thinking this through. We can solve our theological and our political troubles here if we sacrifice one man and nobody else will have to pay a price. Now, what's fascinating about that is not just the glimpse inside the soul of a man who has crossed the line and is willing to do anything to maintain his power, okay? The worst of the dictators in all of human history are people that have crossed that line where they are willing to do anything to keep their power. Caiaphas has become one of those people. But let me tell you something. In verse 51, uh, let's see. Uh, oh, verse 50 uh, is where Caiaphas speaks. Now, verse 51, this is not the high priest speaking. This is John, the author, who gives us an editorial comment and explains what's happening. So Caiaphas has said these words, and then John comes in in verse 51, and he says, Now, he did not say this on his own, but as he was high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What's happening here is John is telling us that these words that came out of the mouth of Caiaphas Caiaphas was arguing for the murder of a single man, but John, in a sense, says there have never been words spoken in human history that could be categorized as an involuntary prophecy more than these words. Caiaphas is up here saying it's good for one man to die for the sake of the nation. He means to preserve our power and to keep us in control. But John says as soon as those words came out of the mouth of the high priest... What he heard was, Jesus is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. You see, let me take you back to the Old Testament real quickly. In the Old Testament, there was a sacrificial system that God's people followed. And the sacrificial system, um, it's really not as complicated as, as it looks. I mean, you go back and read the Old Testament, and you're like, ah, all these different animals and all these different things. But the reason it seems to be so complicated is because God gave Israel the sacrificial system and each piece of it, each aspect of the sacrificial system taught something about the final sacrifice of the Messiah so that sins could be forgiven, so that a perfect substitute could take the, the, the place and the punishment for us so that we could receive mercy and grace and, and, and have a relationship with God. The sacrificial system taught like a series of object lessons. Well, you know about the sacrifice that they would bring an unblemished goat or a, or a lamb or, or a bull, and the priest would inspect it. It had to be perfect. It had to be unblemished. And they would kill it in a certain way, and then it would be burned on the altar. That's the part of the sacrificial system that, that you're probably a little bit more familiar with. But there's another part of the system that you may not know about, and it was, called, it, it was the part of the system called the scapegoat. Now, a scapegoat, that's a word in our language that means when you pick somebody else to blame for something. I mean, who's going to take the fall for this? We need a scapegoat. That word actually comes from a Hebrew word in the Old Testament. The scapegoat was a part of this sacrificial system. And what would happen is on the day that the priest would offer sacrifices for the people, they would bring a goat. The goat had been examined. It was a perfect goat. There were no obvious blemishes in any way. And the priest would put his hands on the head of the goat. And while his hands were on the head of the goat, he would recite the sins of the nation. Symbolically, he was taking the sins of Israel and transferring them to the goat. The goat becoming the guilty one, the scapegoat. And then, once he had offered, once he had announced all the sins of the nation and, in a sense, weighed that guilt onto the goat, they would drive the goat out from the city. And they would drive it so far out into the desert that it could never find its way back home. It was an image, a symbol of one taking all the collective guilt of the entire nation 
and, and one substitute taking that guilt and, go, and taking that guilt so far away that the people were now clean, washed pure, innocent, if you will, because their guilt had been removed. Caiaphas is unwittingly using scapegoat language. He says, the end justifies the means. What's the death of one guy if it solves all the rest of our problems? But what the followers of Jesus heard under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he illumined in their minds and understanding of this, what they heard was the high priest who hates Jesus has just said, it's necessary for this man to die because the entire nation of God's people will benefit from it. Folks, that's exactly what's about to happen in just a few days of this, uh, of this informal meeting of, of those in control. They're going to find a way to take this informal consensus and they're going to implement it. You see, what they wanted was they wanted to find a way to, to have Jesus found guilty of a crime that would be a capital offense in the eyes of the Romans. Because then the Romans will solve our problem for us by killing this man. Now, we know down the road, we know that Jesus is brought before the Roman ruler in this area named Pontius Pilate. You don't have to be a real Bible scholar to be familiar with the story. Pontius Pilate finds nothing wrong with Jesus. And yet, they demand that he be executed. And so what does Pilate do? He brings out a, a bowl of water and he washes his hands, symbolically saying, my hands are clean. It's not my fault. Well, it was, but, but he was trying to say. Caiaphas is doing the same thing. He's trying to... He's trying to see that Jesus is executed. But if we can get the Romans to do it, we'll have clean hands. Folks, there are no clean hands related to the death of Jesus. Because every single one of us who ever committed a sin, our hands are bloody with that death. The death of Jesus is because we're sinners. You want your hands made clean? They can't be made clean by not accepting responsibility. They're washed clean when we say he died because of me. And when we admit that it's our sin that is the problem in the world, it's not those people or those people or those people. It's not, it's not the politicians. It's not the, it's not the medical doctors. It's, it's, it's not the, the, those foreigners. You want to know what the problem in the world is? It's me. And the only way I'll ever have clean hands is if I allow Jesus to be my substitute, to take control of my life. If I relinquish my place in control and give myself to Him. They decided here that Jesus was going to die. He had to go. The only thing left is to figure out how to pull it off. Well, let's go back to the people we like. Let's go back to the family. We followed, John follows the story of these responses. One, the, the, those who came to believe in Jesus because of Lazarus' resurrection and those who went and reported to his enemies and and he gives us that little side story. But now we're going to come back and we're going, to, we're going to find our way back to the family. See, we haven't seen their response yet to the resur resurrection. Verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the region near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. 
Jesus doesn't stay to celebrate with the family, although I'm sure there was a celebration when Mary and Martha got Lazarus home and cleaned up. But Jesus leaves. The disciples had said it's going to be dangerous if we go into Judea. So they went there. They were there long enough for this miracle to take place. And then Jesus withdrew. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't running away. He was living by a timetable of when things needed to unfold. And it wasn't yet time to go to Jerusalem. He would go to Jerusalem because of the Passover. And that's when events would unfold. So temporarily in the hubbub of all the response to this resurrection, Jesus temporarily withdraws waiting for the right time. But here's the thing. Look at the next verses. Even in his absence, he is the talk on everybody's lips. Verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was near and many went up to Jerusalem from the country prior to the Passover in order to purify themselves. So they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple area, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so they might arrest him. Here's the thing. Jesus is withdrawn temporarily, um, but everybody's talking about him. Now it says they've gone to Jerusalem early for the Passover. Here's the reason for that. The Passover was one of those festivals that the Jews practiced on an annual basis, and it was, one of the, it was really one of the two biggest ones. Now, when you were traveling from the countryside, there was always the danger that something would happen that would make you ceremonially unclean. If, if an animal died, if, if, if a, one of your animals died along the way or something, if you touched a dead animal, you were ceremonially unclean, and there was a waiting period after you were ceremonially unclean for some reason, before you could then be clean to participate in the celebration. So what happens is they would leave their villages, they would come from the countryside, and they would make their way to Jerusalem early enough so that if something happened, they wouldn't get to Jerusalem and then not be able to participate in the Passover. They would get there early and then they would have time for, for purification or for ritual cleansing before the Passover occurred. So Jerusalem, a week before the Passover, is already teeming with, with travelers. I mean, they're coming from all over the country in every direction. They're coming for the big celebration, but everybody's talking about Jesus. In fact, the Pharisees had people at, at, at the tomb of Lazarus. When Jesus came there, he raises him from the dead, and they rushed to tell the Pharisees. That's just an indication that now they've probably ramped that up. They've got people everywhere. I mean, the only thing missing here is a good old-fashioned Western uh, wanted poster with Jesus' face on it. They've got people everywhere, and they're on the lookout for when Jesus makes his way to Judea because he's a wanted man. Now, in that environment, Jesus picks his time to come back. He comes back. We celebrate Palm Sunday as the start of Holy Week. But I'm here to tell you Holy Week actually started the night before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem because he makes his way back into Judea. He's going to spend a week, his final week, in Jerusalem leading up to the cross. And the night before he goes to, uh, to Jerusalem, he comes where? To Bethany to the home of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. The whole world around them is crazy. But here's the thing. Because of Jesus, the decision to follow him, it meant in a crazy world where everybody was up in arms about what was about to happen, there was one place where some believers, some followers of Jesus were having dinner in absolute peace. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This is the first time that we've seen the family since the miracle, and it's the last place that we see Lazarus in the New Testament. First two verses. Therefore, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a dinner there, and Martha was serving, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. 
All the lookouts had been alerted. Jesus was a wanted man. But here he boldly returns to Bethany for dinner the night before his grand entrance into the capital city of Jerusalem. The entire region is in uproar, but there is here a small gathering of people, and they are absolutely not touched by the craziness of the world around them. Look at each one of these. Lazarus. Think about this. It says in the text that Lazarus was reclining at a meal. Now, that, that, that describes his physical posture, but the Greek word there also means that he was absolutely just chilling with Jesus. I mean, he was just relaxed. They're having conversation. Remember, he's, Jesus is a wanted man, and Lazarus, frankly, is a wanted man too. The whole world is crazy, but inside that house, they're having the time of their lives. I mean, there's, it, Lazarus doesn't have a worry in the world. Why? Because he's already seen the other side. Lazarus knows one of these days he's going to go back into that tomb. Lazarus knows one of these days he's going to need those grave clothes put back on him. But there's no fear of it now because he knows what's on the other side. And the other side is just exactly what Jesus said it would be. The Pharisees, the, the, the religious leaders, the, the people out to get Jesus, the people who have decided that Lazarus has got to go too because he's a walking, living, breathing example of this miracle. Lazarus is not afraid of death. He said, I only came back because Jesus needed me to help bring glory to the Father. I only came back because Jesus wanted to use my story to increase the faith of his disciples. But I'm not here. This is not my home anymore. I've seen my home. Lazarus is reclining at a meal. Man, could you have a better response on Lazarus's part? He, this is a man who had no problems in the world. Why? Because there's nothing that's going to bother him. He knows exactly what's waiting for him. There's Martha. I love the fact that the resurrection of Lazarus put this family not, they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't become itinerant evangelists traveling around the country. You know what it did? It sent them back into their normal life, their regular routine, but with an unshakable confidence in Jesus. Here's Martha. Think about it. She's in the kitchen. She's fixing a meal. We don't know how many people are there, but it's probably a pretty sizable group. She's hustling and bustling and doing her thing. But let me tell you something. Before you feel sorry for Martha, you've got to understand, Martha's in her happy place. There was a woman in my first church years ago. I was in my late 20s. She, was, she and her husband were some, somewhere in their 70s. They were ranchers, and uh, she was about five foot nothing, he was about six foot five, and he'd had a stroke. And this couple, man, they never missed church. He had a cane in one hand and his little five foot tall wife under his other arm, and she would get him in and out of the car and help him get to their, place, their seat in church. But what I remember most about him were all the times that, that Diane and I were invited to their house, usually with a whole group of other people. She was a Martha, and we would come and sit, and, and we would talk, and she'd be back and forth hustling and bustling and everything, and, and she's going to feed you until you roll out of the front door, and all the while she's going to be saying, take this, take this, you just need one more pie, take this with you when you go home. And I remember she used to always say this, and we would all laugh, but I, I suspect that there's a, a seriousness to it. She used to always say, when I meet Jesus and he takes me to my new mansion, the only thing I want is a larger dining room. And I learned a lesson a long time ago that that was how she served Jesus. Here's what I want to say to you. If you're a Martha, quit feeling guilty and trying to turn yourself into a Mary. And if you're a Mary, quit trying to be a Martha. God made us unique. He gave us a temperament, a personality. He gave us gifts. And he 
takes satisfaction when we offer him every part of who we are. Martha was in the kitchen. She's setting the table. She's bustling around trying to get everything arranged. But I'm telling you, with her newfound confidence in Jesus, she's never been happier in her whole life. Because she's doing for Jesus what she's uniquely gifted to do. She's being the best Martha she can be. Now, we're not going to look at Mary until we get to next week, but I will tell you this. Martha's hustling and bustling in the kitchen and the dining room, and she's getting everything ready. You know where Mary is? She's seated at the feet of Jesus. She's listening quietly to every word spoken in the conversation in the room. Jesus and Lazarus are talking about things that only they know about. And she's just soaking it up. And she's waiting for her opportunity when she can offer worship with the very best of what she has and who she is. Here's the thing about this, this story as we come to the close of the Lazarus events. I have a question for you. Where are you in this story? Are you an observer? That is, are you kind of just watching from the outside? You, you, you go to church and, and you kind of look and see, but, and, and you like what you see, but, but it's not yours yet. You see, it's critical once you know who Jesus is, that he's the real deal. It's critical that you get off the fence and you make a decision to follow Jesus. Because I can't promise you unlimited opportunities down the road. And I also can't promise you that once you reject Jesus, and so I never rejected Jesus. Well, if you tell him not today, what you've told him is, I'll follow my timetable here, not yours. That's a rejection. If you're an observer, don't you think it's time that you got off the fence? He is who he said he was. All the evidence is there. Believe and follow. And I have to ask you this as we look at this story. Where are you in the story? Are you an enemy? Say, so, oh, Pastor, how could I be an enemy? I'm a member of this church. I didn't ask you if you were a member of the church. I asked you if you were an enemy of Jesus. You see, the Bible tells us that in the last days, those that persecute the church most severely will come from inside the church. Matthew tells us that, that Jesus told a story about a farmer that that, that realized that an enemy had sowed tares, weeds, in his wheat field. And he said, don't, don't, don't mess with it now because we don't want to damage any of the wheat. Let them all grow up fully because the, the more they grow, the more recognizable they are in their differences. And we will harvest the wheat and we will set it aside and it will be useful to us. And we will harvest the tares and we'll set them aside and they'll be burned for the waste that they are. Every church in the world has wheat and tares. To my eyes, they look just alike. But to the eyes of the one who never makes a mistake, you can't fool Jesus long ever so here's the question are you an enemy when the day comes that it's not easy to go to church when the day comes that that we're not allowed to practice our faith the way that we should be allowed which side of that fence are you going to be on are you a follower a worshiper because if you are, what that means is that you have developed an unshakable confidence in Jesus. 
And now you're using everything about you, your temperament and your personality, your abilities, your gifts. You're using the way you were uniquely created and gifted so that you can honor Jesus by offering yourself as a living sacrifice. If you're an observer, it's time to get in the game to follow Jesus. If you're an enemy, it's time to take a serious look at the consequences of being on the wrong side of eternity and come to Jesus. And if you're a worshiper, a believer, a follower, man, it's time for us to have a boldness that says we are unshakable in what we do and who we are because of what he did and who he is. We're going to take just a couple of minutes here. I want to give you the opportunity to come to Jesus. To analyze who you are in this story. And to consider what that means for you. An observer needs to come to Jesus in faith. An enemy needs to come in repentance and ask for forgiveness. And a follower. A follower needs to renew the stand that we will take because of who we are in Christ. Our pastors will be right here. We'd love to pray with you. We'll answer your questions as best we can. There's no pressure. You may not even know why you need to come. Just come and talk with us. We're going to stand together and sing. Let me pray. And then you come and meet with one of our pastors. Father, thank you so much. Your word is stunningly pure in our hearts as we hear it. And what we see here has the capacity to change our lives. Lord, in this place, in this time, among this people, I pray that you will find among us a people whose hearts are completely yours. And in this moment, that you would draw us to you and that we would come with passion and enthusiasm because we believe. Father, let us be worthy of the calling that your Spirit is issuing to us. And let us stand with those great men and women of Hebrews chapter 11 who you said the world was not worthy of them. May that be said of a people called Evergreen. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.